Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 4, Episode 3. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, we unveil the details and negotiations from two of Unbridled's landmark deals closed in 2021. I also talk about our deal challenges that we are seeing in the marketplace generally for 2022 so far. And we will tackle the question, what to do if your buyer wants to walk away or retrade your deal. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, hey, glad to be here with you guys today and another episode of the Restaurant Boiler Room. You know, I was just on a cruise a little bit ago and a question came up. I asked my kids this. We got a laugh or two out of it, so I'll ask you too. So if you were on a cruise ship and you had to dance to one of those cheesy songs, you know what I mean, that they play? Maybe you haven't been on a cruise ship, but would you rather dance A, the Macarena, B, the Cupid Shuffle, C, the Electric Slide, D, none of the above? Oh yeah, and E is the wobble. Have you heard this song, the wobble? It's kind of a kind of a funny song. So there you go. Those are your choices. We had a split vote in our family. I think most people said the Cupid Shuffle. One person said the wobble, and then one person said the Macarena. So uh, it's hilarious. So anyway, random little funny thing there. Okay, so as we as we get going today, I just glad you guys have tuned in. What I want to talk about today is first. We do unbridled nominates, you know, thanks of a couple of deals a year that are kind of the deals that we like to highlight at the end of the year. And so I wanted to explain a couple of those to you, let you have the chance to just listen how they kind of unfolded. So we'll do that a little bit. The 2022 year so far, man, it's been an interesting one with Omicron stepping up and, you know, now it's obviously subsided, which is fantastic. You know, I'm glad that's kind of sort of coming behind us now. We're seeing all these mask mandates getting, you know, waived and everything else. It took a big chunk out of late December and, you know, and most of January for the franchise industry and for a lot of our economy. So, you know, 2022 is going to start slow anyway, in my view, after a record setting 2021 and all these deals and all this M&A activity and all this banking activity happening to try to get under the 2021 year-end deadline with the tax policy in place at least till the end of the year, not knowing what would happen this year. I always knew it would advance forward a little bit of the M&A activity. And so we expected the first quarter or the first half of 2022 to be a little bit slower. And I mean, maybe at Unbridled, maybe we were doing so much more business than everybody else relative to what we'd done in the past that we have a, a little bit of a, a microcosm view that, that may not fully you know reflect how the overall market's trending, especially as you back out of franchises and restaurants. But but inside this little industry, what I see is that you know, a little slow start to 2022 because of Omicron, a little slow start to 2022 because of some of the activity in 2021 that closed that kind of created a little bit of a vacuum. 
And then we have kind of a little little bit of inflation news that's been challenging to us, right? Both on the labor and on the commodity side, actually quite eye-popping there. It's forcing operators to look at their P1 and P2 financials over last year and I think say it's time to raise prices again. We've got to look at trying to keep our business as profitable as it was last year and implement some new labor things, some new food cost things, some new promotions from the franchisor, maybe delay some remodeling. You know, weather's been a little bit of a factor throughout the Midwest and Northeast too. So all that to say, I think the end of the first quarter and into the second quarter of 2022 here is going to pick up a little bit. There is going to be a little bit of a, in my view, a little bit of a time where there's got to be a little comeuppance here on valuations. I mean, we've been riding this enormous wave of high values and high EBITDA multiples and COVID sales and profits, you know, in some cases it's they're sustainable. In some cases, they were a little higher than than, than what the normalized sales are going to be going forward. That's a market by market, state by state, brand by brand, deal by deal type of thing. But overall, you know, there was going to be a little bit of a comeuppance and, and a little bit of challenge to valuations in t- 2022. And, and I think we're starting to see it. I don't talk to any bankers who are overly negative, at least not in writing, but I think the sentiment is out there now amongst the lending community and the franchise side that underwriters for a lot of these larger shops are going to be a little more selective in 2022 as they see kind of the comp pressure and then they see some of the bottom line EBITDA margin degradation, you know, if, if there is any in some of these brands. So expect that a little bit as we go into 2022. I tell people, I was just telling a, a guy on our team last night, M&A activity is kind of, I don't know, we do, we do you know, it's busy and active when when things are great, when the economy and the environment and the, the clients that we serve are doing really well. M&A is awesome, um, a lot of it. When things are really bad, you know what I mean? There's a lot, there's typically a lot of M&A too. Um, you know, the M&A, that type of stuff is is not as fun to do because you've got pressure and there's usually banks involved and, you know, maybe there's write-offs and bankruptcies and angry negotiations and prices are lower than what you'd want them to be. So that kind of work, you know, is not the easiest or maybe the most fun, but there's usually a lot of it when times are really bad. And then like anything, people who buy things, some people like to buy things that are dented and beat up and have hickeys and warts on them. And, you know, other people like to buy things that are like a, buying a Ferrari at the top speed, right? So those two time frames typically have a lot of deal flow. It's usually when you're in a transitionary period where deal flow is, you know, in the environment is a little bit more difficult. And it's usually, especially when you're on the downswing, like in the middle of a, of a little bit of a downswing. And that's maybe what we're seeing in 2022 as we start the year is that um, we're kind of lapping over really high sales. We're kind of swallowing some of these commodity cost increases. We have more buyers than sellers at the, you know, at the moment, but still we have fewer buyers than we did last year because a lot of the buyers have their coffers full with new acquisitions that they're doing. I mean, it is also true that the franchisor is sticking their neck in some of these transactions more. And for those of you who haven't listened to a lot of the podcasts, I'll just tell you, like, you know, I used to work at Yum Brands Corporate, and so I came from the franchisor side maybe 20 years ago, you know, almost. And so great respect for the franchisor. Most of the time over the my professional career doing this, doing deals, the franchisor has largely been somewhat silent. They they don't get involved too much across a multitude of brands in the M&A process. 
other than to to kind of approve or disapprove the buyer that wants to buy the assets being sold. But now I think I'm kind of seeing, you know, our company at least has seen it across multiple brands. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking at least four brands that we've been involved in in the last six months have seen franchisors getting involved in the transaction and exercising the right of first refusal or, or paying a, you know, kind of playing a, a bigger role than, than we'd expect from past dealings. So that's a change that produces a little bit of a challenge too. So I think we just got to kind of watch for this like soft landing. I think the soft landing happens sometime this summer, hopefully. You know, I'm a little worried about what happens to interest rates, man. You know, like, so what are you guys and gals reading on the in the tea leaves, right? We're looking at maybe three or four interest rate hikes this year. That'll affect borrowing a little bit. You know, but overall, good businesses will continue to sell and sell at great prices. And there's going to be one of these phenomenons that there always is where the cream rises to the top. So if you have the best business in a good brand and you decide to sell it and there aren't that many other transactions on the market, you should still expect to get great pricing at great EBITDA multiples and, you know, you know, and great interest in your business, right? If you are a, an average business, all the way up to a really good business in a brand that's just kicking butt, one of the best brands you know out there. Expect that to still have great interest, great response, great pricing, great options, all that stuff. If you're going to sell a company, I think where you kind of start to see the change is where you have some of these brands that have kind of just done okay, or the business is okay in a brand that's okay. And those kind of businesses are, I think, going to see a little bit of a of a challenge to do M&A work and also to borrow money or to recap their companies this year. So be patient. It is important if you're an operator listening to this podcast, I'd say, man, if you're looking to borrow money, if you're buying out a partner, if you're recapping your business, if you're borrowing for an acquisition or whatever you're trying to do, you know, you're going to have to probably widen your search if you're looking for capital, especially you know debt capital, the sale leaseback market still seems to be really strong. I, you know, I don't see much change there. I think REITs are still in play in a big way. You've got the 1031 buyers who are still crazy. A lot of them out in California. Everyone always asks me like, why are all the buyers out in California? You know, for for real estate. And I say I say in response, where else do you see 13% state income tax rates? <laughs> so like, if you're at the top tax bracket in, in California and you're paying 40%, roughly 41.6 or whatever the number is with Obamacare, and you're paying 13.3 or whatever the number is for the state of, of California, and you add all that stuff together, I mean, I ain't the brightest guy in the world, but that's 44% or 54% on your taxes, right? Like, so you see less than half the money that you make. Well, that drives people to put to put money in, in real estate and then to do tax-deferred 1031 exchanges, right? And then typically then what you see is these these California investors will try to buy in like Texas, right? And buy a bunch of properties in Texas. And then all of a sudden, guess what happens? They move to Texas. So it's kind of an interesting thing. By the way, I see why people move to Texas. Any of you who, who listen from Texas, I was there last week driving through. My daughter is uh, looking at Baylor for a university. What an awesome school that is. And, you know, you can just see all the progress. It's amazing what's going on in Dallas and Houston and Austin. Those cities are just absolutely growing. Anyway, that's kind of what, what we see on the real estate side. All right. So a couple of deals. So, so far in 2022, We've had a couple, you know, closings. Have a, you know, Burger King closing. We sold some wing stops. Interesting, first kind of foray into the wing stop side of, of the world. And wow, you know, that brand has really come a long way. And I just say kudos to the wing stop brand. 
goodness gracious, they've got some great promotions. They've, you know, wing prices are crazy, right? But they've got some really strong sales volumes. Their dollar per square foot, if you track it this way, I mean, the amount of money that they generate for the square footage in some of these small wing stop locations is incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. So, you know, I know that franchise base within that brand is a little bit fragmented with smaller operators. And so that's a challenge for someone coming in with a platform investment in a brand like that. But I got to say, you get into the Wingstop brand, they're on a run. And the way it's been explained to me in that brand is, you know, you get in, you just get in and you just deal with the wing prices. Sometimes the wing prices are really, really high and you don't make any money. And other times, you know, wing prices dip really low and then you make a ton of money and you just kind of ride it like you would the stock market as you operate the stores, which I think is kind of an interesting phenomenon that you don't see people thinking about as much. Or you see people like, you know, thinking more about hedging the inflation of costs. But with the wings, it's just a crazy up and down market, you know, of, of buying and selling wing prices are crazy sometimes. If I just take you through a couple of these deals, the first one, so on Unbridled, we had, you know, we, we, we kind of feel like two deals stood out for us last year. I mean, there were, we did 33 transactions last year, I think, and, and uh, we're blessed to have really had a, you know, an awesome year, you know, historic year for our company. One of the two transactions I just like to talk about a little bit was, you know, we were involved on the buy side helping a group called Moss Restaurant Group acquire 36 Taco Bells in the Columbus, Ohio area, which is kind of a neat transaction for us. And Moss Restaurant Groups was backed by Bessemer. Bessemer is, uh, you know, one of the larger family offices in the world, and they are, you know, a prominent Taco Bell franchisee and a great company. And so is Moss Restaurant Group. Moss is out of, uh, they, they got into the Taco Bell system through the Houston market owned and operate rough numbers between you know 75 and 100 stores down there. And they were looking to broaden and grow. They called us and, and we helped them get into a uh, you know, longtime friend of mine in Columbus who'd, who'd operated for 40 years in the Taco Bell system. And we'd been good friends and we kind of helped them expand into his market and buy his stores. And now they're in two major DMAs across the country. And I think there are just a lot of interesting, you know, it was a large transaction by dollar volume, which is good. But, you know, I just think it was kind of a, you know, it was a great management team with Moss Restaurant Group. They wanted to expand and create more opportunity for their employees and to grow their company for their investors and for what they're doing. And so it was just kind of like a a pretty good transition, went pretty smoothly. The support systems of both companies are really strong. Their relationships are good throughout the transaction. And, you know, I mean, like anything, I mean, your granddad or your grandmother or something told you this when you were growing up, right? They patted you on the head and they said, you know, you got to have trust, you know, and do what you say you're going to do and never break a promise. You know, these simple axioms that you hear as a kid, and you're like, whatever, you know, okay, granddad. But those things kind of matter, don't they? So the thing about trust, I mean, it, it just goes a long way in making for a, a, a successful transaction. And, and that's kind of the way that I work in my personal and professional life. It's like I deal with people. Sometimes I'll make a mistake, but in most occasions, I deal with people that I trust, right? And I've developed, a, you know, over the years, as you probably have too, a sixth sense to know who you feel like you can trust and who you don't feel like you can trust. And in this particular transaction, you know, it was basically a handshake between the two parties and then off to the races to go through all the details and negotiations of, of selling a big company from one company, you know, from one organization to another. But trust was the main reason why it happened. And I think both of the principles of each of these two companies, the buyer and the seller, trusted each other, trusted their operating history and the way they the way they had worked with one another before and known each other through various, you know, committees and things like that. And 
And so that transaction was a good one. I want to give a kudos out to Derek Ball and our company for leading that that transaction. So that was that was one that I was really pleased for. And then towards the end of last year, the second deal that that I would say that we that I wanted to kind of highlight is a 90 unit KFC business, actually 75 KFCs and 15 KFC Taco Bell multi-brands. So it's 90 units. It's a big, big valuation, right? And the seller was Fowler Foods out of Arkansas, but they owned in eight different states, including all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida. You know, my new home state of Florida, whoop, whoop. And then the buyer was a Tasty Chicken, a subsidiary of Tasty Restaurant Group. And Tasty had, you know, has bought a couple hundred Pizza Huts, some through us. They We've sold them some Dunkins over the years. They're from Beverly Hills, and they got into the they got into the franchise space by buying uh, Burger King restaurants. Maybe I'm, I'm going to say 2018. So they've really become one of the. I'm guessing now with this acquisition of Fowler Foods, you know, maybe one of the top three or four or five franchisees in the United States. You know, by size in the course of three and a half years. So it's pretty impressive growth for them, right? So this was an asset sale. It was a family business, the Fowler family business. The Fowlers had been attached to KFC for 58 years, and they bought and sold some stores over the years, but this was the first time that they'd had a full exit of the KFC system. I mean, the transaction was a little bit crazy, right? You know, when you sell a company of that size, eight states, 90 restaurants, lots of moving parts, tons of employees, you know, lots of negotiations. You're selling to a private equity group that's got requirements of their own to buy a company like that. You know, like most private equity groups do, you do things like significant due diligence. You you do quality of earning studies. You look at the assets that you're going to acquire and and get a feel of whether you you're comfortable with those assets or in their the state of their condition. So that that was a a part of it. That the deal had to close by the end of 2021. It was important for the seller. You didn't want to drag it into 2022, not knowing if any tax legislation would change, and then retroactively he'd have to pay more taxes on his on his sale than he otherwise would. I mean, that's a concern of that was a concern of mine too. Sometimes you you know these kind of tax deadlines or there's there's like a, a line in the sand that causes a deal to go faster. But you know, obviously, it puts a lot of pressure at the end of the year. In this particular case, we were able to to pull it off. I thought it was going to happen before Christmas, and it and it happened right at Christmas time. So we were going all the way to to almost the the very end of the year. And I think I've said this on a prior podcast or two, but once you get once you got into a really compressed timeline, you have these third party folks who are involved and have to get a deal done. And a lot of people forget about them, or they they don't get involved in the transaction until you know it's like sixty days left. Like you think about these people. Crazy things is you don't think about like the franchisor has to issue new store numbers and those store numbers, you're like, oh, okay, well, we can get new store numbers in these darn restaurants in the last week before the transaction closes and it'll be all good. But it doesn't work that way because the the store numbers have to be programmed into the computer systems that have to be like downloaded onto the franchisor platform. And, and then it has to be like sprayed out to the stores and the suppliers and everything else. And so just the changing of the store numbers, you know, usually precipitates a, like a 45 day hold period, right? Or at least 30 days. You've got things like appraisers, environmental reports, and diligence providers, and lease assignments. And you have these professionals like attorneys and CPAs and lenders and all these other constituents involved in the transaction that have to come to the table to make a deal happen. And they're all pressed for time with other deals and other pressures for the end of the year. So that happened here, clearly. The last deal I talked about, the Taco Bell deal, happened in the middle of the year in June. So it, it didn't have those pressures, but this one this one did. One of the exciting things about this is there's not too many you know 90-unit KFC businesses in the country. 
country, right? I mean, our company sold a big KFC business of this size a couple of years back. There's only probably only five or six franchisees that are larger than this in the KFC system, maybe six or seven, you know, losing track at the moment. But the point holds that it's a, a pretty big platform deal. And it was one of the, you know, one of the only new large private equity family office franchisees to come into that brand in a long time. I mean, there's been one big consolidator in that brand, which is a great company that they've done a great job and they've grown and they're enormous and they've been patient and faithful and and been good for the system. But, you know, otherwise it's kind of been like if there's two or three or four KFCs, it gets sold to either that big consolidator or somebody nearby who's a neighboring franchisee. But now, you know, we've brought three new private equity or family office or buyers into the KFC system as an example, this being the third one, Tasty Restaurant Group. And it kind of changes the complexion of what the future of this brand will look like. Different brands are under different life cycles, right? So in some brands, like I, you know, I just throw some examples at you, like Pizza Hut, for example, was a brand that would, has like 95 franchisees with average of, of 60 units each, right? So that was always like a closely held brand of small numbers of franchisees with large unit counts. You had the colonel with KFC who would drive around in his Winnebago, or not his Studebaker, and would make deals with little hotel owners on the side of roads and would, you know, it was like a nickel a, ch- a head of chicken. He They'd pay him for a, you know, as a franchise, as, as royalties, right? Something like this. And and he would give territories kind of uh, haphazardly to small operators and towns. And so that brand grew a lot differently. It grew with the average franchisee, like I, I say, looking like American Gothic, the painting American Gothic. You know, the old dude with the pitchfork and the bib overalls on and his wife next to him with like the little cornfield and the house in the background. <laughs> That's kind of how the KFC community started. And so those are two extreme examples. And most examples are somewhere in between. And the age of the brand is another interesting thing. So we talked about Wingstop a little a minute ago. And, you know, that brand's not as old, right? It's really come into play and really come on strong in the last six or seven or eight years, primarily. It's been a long, around longer than that. But that kind of a brand may have kind of the American Gothic kind of KFC background, but it's just newer and younger. So the type of franchisees that are in it or not don't necessarily look or act or feel like that, but they're still smaller in scale and very much entrepreneurs and small business owners in their towns that they operate. So you see all kinds of different types of franchise makeups. And I guess the point for this particular deal is bringing in a large outside group to make a significant investment in the KFC system is kind of a exciting thing to see because it will mean that the KFC system grows up a little bit in its franchisee base, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And others are doing the same and will continue to do the same through the next cycle, whatever that next cycle will be. You know, I hope it's not with with distress across these brands in the next couple of years, but the consolidation trend will, will likely continue. What would I tell you? Anything else about this particular deal? When you're integrating a new software system, a new payroll system, a new back of the house system, right? You know, you have parties in this deal agreed to short-term transitional service agreements so that at the day of closing, you don't have the seller walking away with absolutely, you know, no you know, just kind of walking away and the buyer trying to swallow all these new services and all these new programs and and things. So that was something that we put in place, you know, in this type of a transaction. You see that on larger transactions, especially when you have a a company like Tasty that owns in what, three different brands over here to the left and over to the right, none of them are KFC. So when you merge them all together, the systems don't talk together at the the highest level and it requires time post-closing to integrate the acquisition so that everything works properly. So those are the two kind of transactions that, that that we pointed out this year that we're pretty proud of. One 
36 Taco Bells in, in Columbus, Ohio, and the other 90 KFCs in eight state region out of uh, Jonesboro, Arkansas. All right. So I'm just looking at my little yellow pad here, all these notes scratched out. Like some of it's like what I'm, what I'm going to do this year to like, you know, like uh, New Year's resolutions. And I've already blown all of those. Right. So I don't know how you're feeling about your New Year's resolu- resolutions at this point, but I'm looking at ones I've scratched out. So I guess I'm already, I've already blown it, guys. So I'm looking here at what to do. I just had this question written down what to do if your buyer walks away or wants to retrade. And I thought it would be something to talk about for a few minutes. For transactions that are going on right now, especially when you have, I'm not saying this happening in every brand in every situation, but it is happening in some where you had kind of like a bad January and a bad February, right? Because we talked about it earlier, either you're rolling over really big numbers or Omicron, you know, really hurt your business or, you know, you had a temporary blip in, in lower EBITDA because you were unable to price, you know, to increase prices on your asset, on your food or on your products but higher costs enter into the business. For all these reasons, you could be, you know, someone could be in the middle of a transaction. A buyer and seller could have made a price and agreed to pricing and terms. They even could have gone through an LOI process, signed a purchase agreement with one another, submitted it to corporate for right of first refusal and whatever brand that we're talking about. And now there's a 45 or 60 day due diligence window. And during that window, there's a quality of earnings study, let's just say, where the buyer is hiring an independent third party to come in and take a look at the quality of the financials and to give them a read on the quality of the financials in order that they can part of their charter with their family office or private equity group. They have to have that, or maybe they do it for a level of comfort for their investors and a level of security. But whatever the reason, there's all this stuff that's happening during the due diligence phase. And what happens if during the due diligence phase, sales and profits are going down? Well, you know, in most in most cases... In most cases, if the if the decline is nominal, even over the you know even if the trend is is down, but the decline is you know still kind of around what you were last year or slightly below what you were last year, or there's an explanation, then then usually buyers and sellers typically are okay with that and and, and they work it out. In some cases where there is a, a couple of periods of really poor performance, but the seller, for example, didn't raise prices quickly enough, but there was a plan to say, hey, this is temporary. We're going to raise prices by 3%. We expect it to stick at 90%, and that's going to cover all of the inflation that you're seeing in the P&L, and our EBITDA will come back to normal, and our sales should be back, you know, back to normal too. Those can be you know, understood and usually accepted. Depends on the circumstance. But if you're in a situation where you just – January this year, you're down 15 over January of last year, right? And it's just, that's a difficult situation to be in because in this, in this particular environment, most of us would say, I suspect that's a short-term blip. Most of us in this world had Omicron in the last, in the last month, right? So I think I saw a stat that said 73% of America or something of that nature had Omicron, whether they knew it or not. So like basically everyone had it. And so we suspect that, you know, sales are down in January, because people are not leaving the house as much, and they're just kind of locked down a little bit. And we also suspect that, you know, there were some changes in our economy, things were thawing, and and it was a difficult temperature and weather, depending on where you, you live. But the buyer is saying to themselves, or saying to the seller, you're down an incredible amount in sales and profits, and we think this is going to continue, and we, you know, are no longer in for this deal at the price that we initially proposed to you. So what do you do? In that situation, it hasn't happened a whole lot in the last year and a half, but I think we're all going to be faced with this situation a little bit more going forward. I tell people, you know, I, I've been 
successfully and happily married for 20 some odd years, but I've heard people say that that if, if they're in the middle of a friend or a family member that's about to break up, like, like the, the marriage is about to break up, what they push for is a separation before a divorce. I don't know if that's good advice or not, but that's kind of what I hear a lot of. So don't just call it quits, but instead let's separate. You know, you go live in this apartment, I go live in this apartment and let's go work it out. You know, something like that. Let's create a little bit of time and let's revisit things and let's not let emotions get high and make any bad decisions. So that's the first principle that I usually that I usually employ when we when we talk about these deals is to whether it's short term or not, if there is a change, a material change in sales and profitability during a deal, and then you usually have a lender who looks at it and says, woe is me, I can't lend you what I was going to lend you on this deal because the financials have changed and we're scared. Then what typically happens or what we typically recommend is that we separate, don't divorce. You know, let's create a little more time in the deal, especially if there's good faith between the buyer and seller. And let's watch and see if this trend is temporary. If it's temporary and explainable, then there should be no issue. If it's not temporary and can't be explained, then we may have to come back to the table and talk about adjusting pricing and terms. And then at that point, you could have a buyer and seller that that don't come to terms. So that's kind of the way I, I, I traditionally think about it. You know, you have to have like a good buyer and a good seller in every case, because if you don't have good faith between the parties up to that point in the deal, certainly you're not going to be able to get through a situation where sales are down materially and the buyer and seller kind of don't know what to do. The seller doesn't want to take a price cut. The buyer doesn't want to pay the same price. And we're not sure what's going to happen to the P&L going forward. So the first thing you got to have is you got to have goodwill in a deal. And I tell people too, like when this time comes up, if it does, you don't want to try to win every little aspect of the deal that you're involved in. Like I see, especially rookies, first timers or second timers come into these transactions and try to win on every point. And throughout the negotiation of buying a $100 million franchise business with a ton of units across the country, okay, there are going to be a hundred things that have to be negotiated. And I've done hundreds and hundreds of the, our company's done hundreds and hundreds of deals like this. And so I could put 50 of them on a page, you know, and say, these are the most common, but there's always something new. Every single time there's always something new that's negotiated that you don't, that you didn't know about, that came up, that wasn't considered, you know, change in circumstance, whatever it is. So you don't want to try, if you, especially if you're both sides of a transaction, you don't want to try to win every point. Because at some point down the line, I mean, it has to be a good deal for everybody. And at some point down the line, you need to have presented yourself throughout a transaction in a reasonable way so that if there is a bigger issue that comes later during the due diligence process, there's enough trust between the parties and enough of a good relationship between the parties that it can be worked out amicably. If that's not there or if there's fatigue leading up to that spot, then that negotiation usually fails and the deal falls apart which ultimately hurts both parties, right? I mean, the buyer is typically at this stage invested in the deal, depending on the size of the deal is spent between $20,000 and $500,000 in diligence costs, right? It's not immaterial. And the seller has also exposed themselves and their employees and the confidentiality of their company and all their time and distraction from operating the business to to helping to sell it. They, they, they've got all that time and cost and effort into it too, So the trust factor and the goodwill factor is so important. And I would say this, like, I think as we as we move into 2022, I'm of the opinion that people are going to have to be okay not getting 
the same price they got in June of 2021. So if you're a seller, I mean, I know in a lot of these residential home markets that, you know, for example, like you're still multiple bids and prices of houses are going through the roof in certain markets and in other markets, properties are sitting and prices might be kind of like flattening. So like you kind of have the same kind of thing going with with franchise businesses, but you just need to kind of you need to be cognizant of the fact that maybe things might be coming down a little bit in 2022 and that's not a bad thing. And if you were at $50 million and now the valuation eight months later, you thought you heard your neighbor sold for this incredible price, but now this $50 million valuation really in today's numbers is you know, 47 or $46 million, which could be like a seven, five to 7% drop from where it was at its peak. You know, you got to be okay with that. You got to be okay with that. And you got to say to yourself, I might, might have missed the absolute peak, but that's okay. I'm still at, in this example at $43 million, I'm still $10 million or $8 million above the 10 year trend of my, you know, of the value of my business. So I, I take what I have on the table. I sell based on a, a long-term vision that I had when I started operating the company. And I'm okay if I'm just a little bit past the curve. And I act responsibly and reasonably during the process because what happened in mid-2021 may not be there at the same price in 2022 if my business has changed or if the conditions have changed. I hope that makes sense. These things are delicate. And the last thing I guess I'd say is, after all these years, I've seen some pretty emotional things, man. Most people... And I like the analogy of basketball, but the really good operators, if you're a really good operator, you work with a lot of discipline in your business, but then you have that little extra something of emotionality, you know, to make the decision, to make these really important decisions at the last minute, selling your company, taking a certain price, making a concession, thinking about, you know, buying into a company, what company, am I going to go into all this kind of crazy debt to do this, all these kind of decisions. So I I liken it to like Michael Jordan, the way he used to like practice, right? Come to practice, you run and you play hard in practice so that you know all the, you know, all the plays, you know how to do the motion offense, right? Pass and screen away. You know how to run the triangle offense that he had with, with Phil Jackson, right? Wasn't that awesome? And then of course took it with to Kobe and Shaq and passed in with Kobe in, in LA. Or you have any other kind of offense, the dribble drive offense that Coach Calipari at Kentucky kind of is famous for, for implementing. So you have all these different types of offenses, but you, you learn them and you practice them and you strategize and you learn every angle and every maneuver out of every one of them. And so then you know the plan, but then that enables you to be free in the last moment when you have to make a last second shot. And that's what I see with a lot of the successful operators. So they manage their business very faithfully on a day-to-day basis. They treat their employees very well. They're in tune with their individual markets. They've got good advisors around them. They're very disciplined. They're blocking and tackling. They're doing everything they're doing to to make money every day. And this franchise business is a day-by-day, minute-by-minute business. And then when the time comes to do something crazy, hit the last second shot and win the championship, they can do it. They're prepared to do it so that they're so prepared so that they can be emotional in the moment and make the right decision on on a dime. Um, and that's that's the way you see some of these transactions unfolding. I do think next time you you know we see you around, I'm going to do a, a, a Q1 update and we'll talk a little bit more about the state of the market. Another month will be a good good thing so that we can figure out where things are going. You hear a little bit difference in my voice this year. And it's because, again, I think it's going to be a little more of a prudent market of buying and selling things. And it's going to be a little more cautious for the first quarter and the first half of this year. Hang in there. Deal flow will will come up again. 
I do worry, don't you all, about some of this Ukraine-Russia stuff? It seems geopolitically like we're in a bit of a quagmire right now. I just hope we, we, you know, the stock markets, you know, dropped, you know, quite a bit this year so far. So let's hope things get leveled out by the springtime. There's great businesses out there to buy and sell. Franchise business continues to be a fantastic place to be. Watch out again for the casual dining opportunities that are going to be coming out probably in the next couple, two or three months. So if you are a wanting to be a consolidator at a relatively inexpensive price for casual dining companies, uh, franchise casual dining companies, and also health and beauty, you're going to see your opportunities come up because those types of companies, as I've said in the past, haven't had an avenue to sell in the last couple of years because the revenues were down because of COVID restrictions across the country. So keep your eye out for that and uh, look forward to talking with you guys again. Be good. Take care. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors, LLC, give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.